We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now, I announced to you in the morning hour that I was going to bring you a message tonight on what comes next on God's prophetic timepiece. I'd like to deal in particular with the nation of Israel among the nations of the earth tonight, a message on the second coming. And one of the reasons that I'm bringing this message tonight is because of the series on the TV. I plan to bring my final sermon on the second coming next Sunday on the television. And if, I, if we continue on, we're going to change the theme First Sunday in September, more than likely I'll be speaking uh, purely evangelistic sermons for the next few months if we continue on the TV. So you pray about that, but I've spent three months now dealing with this general theme by the television, and I thought that I'd climax it by bringing a message to you uh, about the most certain, the most positive, and I think the clearest of all the signs that we've reached the uh, point of the second coming of our Lord. And that uh, clearest of all the signs, of course, is the budding of the fig tree, the signs having to do and related to the nation of Israel that we find in the Word of God. Somebody said that the Jew and Israel is God's timepiece. That is, you watch the movement of the Jews in the world and watch the movement of the nation of Israel among the nations of the earth, you know what time it is on God's clock. And uh, God regulates things. God moves and manipulates uh, greatly dependent upon uh, the people of Israel and the land of Palestine at that particular moment. And how true that is. I marvel at the fulfilled prophecy that we've seen uh, relating to the people of Israel in the last few years, literally fulfilled right before our very eyes. There are five things in relation to Israel that I wanted to point out to you briefly in the message tonight. Number one, a restored land. Number two, a restored people. Number three, a restored nation. And number four, a restored peace. And number five, a restored temple. Now we find all of these five things uh, in the way of restoration in relation to Israel and the land of Palestine. We find all five of these in the Bible. This isn't my idea, and I haven't thought up these things in my own mind, but I've discovered them upon reading and upon studying, as you, the Word of God, and especially Bible of prophecy. Now, the first of these five things that I want to deal with uh, is a restored land, a restored land of Palestine, we call it. Actually, Palestine is not the Bible name, and sometimes the, the Jews that might hear you use that terminology don't appreciate it. The Bible terminology, of course, is Israel. And if you ever go to Israel, never call that land Palestine there because that's the name that was given to the land by the Philistines that occupied the land for the 430 years that Jacob and his sons were down in the land of Egypt. But actually, it's Israel, the land of promise, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And the proper term, of course, is Israel. Now, the people, the land, of course, was given to Abraham and his seed, Genesis chapter number 12, as uh, an everlasting possession. There can be no doubt about that. The covenant that God made with Abraham as recorded in Genesis 12 is clear. And uh, God gave to Abraham all this land, and all to he but to his seed as an everlasting inheritance. Now, Israel, as we know it today, is, a, is only a small part of the overall 
Bible land of Israel. Now, the state of Israel as we find it right now is about the size of the state of South Carolina as far as square miles is concerned. But the whole Bible area of Israel is a much larger uh, sectional land than that. The nation of Jordan, to illustrate my point, is not in the Bible. Now you can find Syria in the Bible, and you can find uh, Lebanon in the Bible. It's called by another name in the ancient day. Uh, but you can't find Jordan in the Bible. And the reason is very obvious. There was no Jordan. Jordan uh, is a nation carved out of Israel by the United Nations back in 1948. And there is no land of, of Jordan in the Bible. All the area that we now call Jordan actually is Israel, the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And so that would mean a much larger area than what we actually call Israel in our day. But here's a land uh, out of which the people were removed in several dispersions. In our Sunday school of late, we studied about the Babylonian captivity and the people of Israel being dispersed out of the land of promise, out of the land of Palestine, first by the Assyrians, the 10 northern tribes were carried away into the Assyrian bondage, and a little bit later by the Babylonians, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, carried away into the Babylonian captivity, 600 BC. That captivity lasted only for 70 years, and after the 70 years, there was a partial restoration of the people in the land of Israel. But the, the nation politically ceased to exist upon Babylon uh, taking over and Nebuchadnezzar uh, dispersing the people, carrying the people away into the bondage into Babylon. The nation of Israel politically, politically then ceased to exist. And for 1,400 years from 600 BC down to 1948, there was no nation of Israel. But in 1948, the land was reborn, of course. Now, in that 2,400-year period, a great deal happened to the land that God promised Israel. Don't you know, and I, I'm sure you do uh, and are aware of the fact, that the land that God gave to Abraham was, was an ideal land. Don't get the idea that God would have given Abraham a desert, worthless, barren wasteland. Has it ever occurred to you that Israel is the site of the Garden of Eden? Uh, evidently in that area somewhere in Israel or in that neighboring country was the Garden of Eden. And the land, no doubt, in the days of Abraham was fertile and productive, massive trees and beautiful valleys and rivers and so on. Uh, the land of Israel, no doubt, one of the garden spots of the earth, 2,500 years B.C., when God gave it to Abraham, the first Hebrew. And uh, Abraham and his seed are the possessors of that land. Now the land continued, no doubt, in that condition until uh, the people of Israel were dispersed in 600 B.C. Now when they went into Babylon, in the Babylonian captivity, then God withheld the rain. And any land in all the world without rainfall is going to become desolate and a desert and barren. So it didn't long, not many generations, until the uh, trees uh, ceased to exist, the rivers and the springs dried up, and all the beautiful productivity of the land became a thing of the past. And for more than 2,000 years, the land that one time contained the Garden of Eden was a barren, worthless, desert wasteland. Now with that in mind, look in your Bible to Ezekiel 36 and verse number 34. And Ezekiel the prophet prophesied about the land, and the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the eyes of all that passed by. And they shall say, this land 
that was desolate is become like unto the garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate lands and ruined cities are become infenced and inhabited. And, and the, then the heathen that are left around about, you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Now, for all those long millenniums, in fact, two millenniums and more, the land was a barren, waste, desert land. No, uninhabited, as far as productivity is concerned, a negative, worthless land, the land of Israel, because of no rainfall. We're told that in 1917, that's in the span of some of our lives, that the annual rainfall in the state of Israel was five inches per year. Now, any land with that amount of rainfall will soon become barren and desolate. Now, how in the world could there be any restoration of that kind of a land, a wasteland, a desert land, five inches of rainfall per, annu per annual in 1917? Now, since 1917 and up until 1973, the annual rainfall has increased from five inches to 19 inches per year. Now, how are you going to explain that? That hasn't been so with the Arizona deserts in our country. That has not been so with the Sahara Desert of Northern Africa. And there are many other lands in the, in the, on the earth today that are barren and desolate. Well, this isn't so. But the land of Israel, something has happened. And the rainfall has increased from 5 inches, 1917, to 19 inches, 1973. And not only that, but the people of Israel going back, the Jew, with their uh, technical know-how, has tapped the waters of, of the Sea of Galilee, fresh water. And through their irrigation systems now, they are pumping water from Galilee uh, as far away as 100 miles down to the Sinai Desert and the Sinai Peninsula. And that barren desert land now has begun to blossom. Springs have broken out in the desert places. And the desert land now has turned green in the land of Israel. Now all of that, of course, the blessing of God and the blessing with the technical know-how upon the people of Israel to be able to do and bring again that land that was desolate and wasteland, barren and worthless to the degree that when men passed by, they said, this is a barren wasteland, no good to anybody. Nobody desired it prior to 1917. But since then, it's become the most coveted spot of earth on the globe. The one spot the nation of the earth have all focused their attention upon since 1917, the land of Israel. Someone has said that Megiddo today, the valley of Megiddo today, is the most productive valley in all the earth. And I've traveled that valley. I've crossed it five times. And I have never in my lifetime seen a valley in all my travels that would compare with the valley of Megiddo in productivity. Not one acre do I remember seeing that was not under cultivation. As far as your eyes could see, beautiful grain and oranges and bananas and all kind of vegetables and other things are so essential to sustain life in the land of Israel being produced in what is called today the breadbasket of the Middle East, the Valley of Megiddo. And a few years ago, the Crusaders fought battles on what they thought was a desert. That land was a desert a thousand years ago when the Crusaders sought to release the land of Palestine from the Muslim and the Muslim religion. 
There are many battles that the Crusaders fought with the Arabs, and many of those battles were fought in the valley of Megiddo, that time a barren wasteland. But that battlefield now has become the most productive spot of earth, I think, that I've ever seen in my lifetime. A restored land. You talk about building in South Carolina, and there's a great deal. But if you went to Israel and could see the building in the land of Israel tonight, you'd be dumbfounded and astounded. High-rise apartments in Jerusalem. The last time we were there two years ago, there must have been at least a half a dozen high-rise apartments and hotels being lifted in Jerusalem at that one time. We lived in a brand, we, we stayed at the brand new one while we were there that was not fully completed, about 15 or 20 stories high. And some others going up all over that, uh, that area, down toward the desert, in uh, Bathsheba, where ancient Abraham lived. A few years ago, a uh, desert down toward Gaza. And in Acts chapter 8, Gaza is called a desert land. And brother, it is a desert land. I was there before the Six-Day War and saw something of a desert in the land of Gaza. And the Bible tells us that. But in that general area is Bathsheba. And that land that was desert all these years, Bathsheba now, is a thriving city, multiplying, building more rapidly, more people migrating into Bathsheba than they can build houses to take care of them and apartment complexes to take care of them. That land has blossomed like under the Garden of Eden. There's no place like it in the world. You think Atlanta, Georgia has blossomed, not more than Jerusalem, nor Tel Aviv, nor Bathsheba, are some of the other cities uh, in that land, Haifa. And not even Atlanta has exploded more as far as population and building is concerned than some of the cities that we've seen in the land of Israel. Now all of this in your lifetime and mine, that's the astounding thing. Before 1917, when England guaranteed the land of Palestine as a national home for the Jew, prior to 1917, you know well that Israel was occupied by the Turks and had been occupied by Turkey for 400 years prior to World War Number 1. And not only Turkey, but many other nations, all the way back to Babylon and back to Nebuchadnezzar. One at a time in the days of our Lord, the land was occupied by Rome. And for 400 years prior to World War Number 1, occupied by Turkey. But as soon as England wrestled the land from the Turks and declared the land a national home for Israel, Things begin to open, things begin to blossom, things begin to happen. That's difficult for me to describe. If I tried to describe some of them to you, you wouldn't believe your ears. You'd say the preacher is exaggerated. But some of you that have been there know that I'm not exaggerated, not at all. It's a tremendous spectacle. A land that was desolate and desert and barren and wasteland, worthless, in one generation has become the breadbasket of all that Middle Eastern country. No nation upon the earth, not even America, exports more oranges than Israel does. Now that's saying a great deal. And the, some of the finest oranges I've ever eaten, oranges with one seed, just one seed, is produced in the land of Israel. Sweet, indescribable. And they ship them out by the shiploads from Israel every single year. And that's only one commodity, many other commodities, is being shipped out of Israel all over the world, being produced in that desert, barren wasteland that Ezekiel talks about in chapter 36 of his prophecy. 
Now, explain that to me other than fulfill Bible prophecy. You'd not be able to do so. So far as I'm concerned, the only explanation for what I'm talking about is God has moved on the scene. God has done something. And God is doing something in the land of Israel. I was listening the other day to my radio and to a newscast in my car. And Lowell Thomas was giving the news on the radio. And on that telecast that night, he said something like this. He said, folk, today, while American oil men were drilling in the Sinai Desert, trying to find oil, and there is oil in that land. That's one of the reasons Russia so covets the land of Palestine. And I think that's going to be one of the reasons that will bring Russia down against Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is going to be the oil that Israel produces. But while American, American men were drilling in the Sinai Desert trying to discover oil, they by accident discovered a massive underground lake of fresh water. And when I heard that, I said, glory, amen. Wow, that man's not a commentator, he's a preacher. And he went on to say on that, on that radio broadcast on the network, he went on to say, uh, in all probability that that underground lake of Clearwater has been there since the days of Abraham. And he used Abraham's name. And he went on to say this. He said, in all probability, that underground lake of clear water in the Sinai Desert is of greater value to Israel than all would be. Now, that's not something I read. I heard that on the network uh, from Lowell Thomas, one of the commentators. Now, that, that's a miracle. And the first thing I thought about when I heard about that great, massive underground lake of clear water probably since Abraham days, I thought about the prophecy that said the day would come when streams would break forth in the desert. Now, you know what those Jews are going to do. You know exactly what they're going to do. They'll build pumping stations out there in the Sinai Desert, and they'll drill down beneath the crust of the earth, down to that fresh water, and they'll put their pipes and their pumps into that fresh water, and they'll surface that water and irrigate that desert. And as sure as you live, that whole Sinai Peninsula that now is looked upon as a barren wasteland and worthless in a few years is going to turn green. What will the nations of the earth say when there's no more Sinai Desert? You talk about the Egyptians being envious. What in the world will they do when they see all the Sinai Peninsula turn green? And it's within the realm of possibility with that fresh water beneath the ground. Amen. Is it anything to you that this discovery was made right at this particular time? Why was it that underground lake I discovered 100 years ago, 200 years ago? There were no Jews in the land then. Don't you think God had that underground water of lake under that desert waiting for his people to migrate, waiting for the Jews to come back from America and Germany and Russia and South America and come back to the land? Don't you know that God made proper and necessary uh, situations so as to accommodate and feed the Jews when they got back so they could sustain life. Why, well, I think the great architect of the universe, when he designed it, put that lake right there, knowing that he'd use it in 1973. Amen. Sure. 
So preacher, you're a fanatic. I'm a believer. I believe the Bible. Now this is a, this is a fulfilled prophecy. A restored land. You don't have to wait for that land to be restored. It's already restored and being restored. And I don't think the half has been told. I'm frank with you. I don't think the half has been told. Did you know that per hundred or per thousand population that there are more lawyers and technicians and doctors and chemists and scientists in the nation of Israel right now than anywhere in the world, including America? There's no nation in the world that has the technical know-how that the Israelites have. Since they've gone back in your generation and mine, they've actually built uh, great plants on the Mediterranean Sea that turn that salt water into fresh water where they can drink it and use it. Fresh water out of salt water. They do that now. Make fresh water out of salt water. Who in the world could do that but a Jew with his know-how, with his skill? And they're doing that in Israel right now. I've seen pictures of them in the land of Israel. They're doing that in the Dead Sea area right now. Those Jews are pumping water out of the Dead Sea right now, and they, they uh, put that water in little canals and, and lakes beside the Dead Sea, and the sun evaporates the water. And when the sun evaporates the water, it leaves behind all those rich minerals. And they go out there with bulldozers and pick up salt and all kind of chemicals they use in fertilizer. Every kind of chemical you can think of, chemicals that I'm not even familiar with. They go out there with not with shovels, but with bulldozers and pick them up ton by ton that they get out of the Dead Sea. And up until 1917, that body of water was counted worthless. Here's a body of water 1,300 feet under sea level, 26% salt. And all the world says it's no good. And yet in my lifetime, it's been discovered as the richest natural mineral deposit on the earth. And I saw with my eyes those Jews taking that water out of the lake, evaporating the water by nature, the sun drawing the water up, leaving behind all those chemicals by the truckloads that they get out of the Dead Sea. Isn't that astounding? And that's the land of Israel for you. Everywhere, prosperity, everywhere, know-how, everything moving along, blossoming out. God's with them of a truth, a restored land. Now let me move on because I'm taking too long at that point. But the second thing I want you to note, number, number one now has already been fulfilled. Don't wait for that. It's being fulfilled. It has been fulfilled. Israel now is ready as far as the land is concerned. The land is ready right now for the second coming of our Lord. As far as I can tell, completely ready right now. The second great thing in relation to Israel is a restored people. Now here's a people that were a people without a home for more than 2,000 years. Now me and you can't appreciate that. We can't feel that because our nation is only 200 years old and we've never known what it meant not to have a national home. When you go overseas, some of you men that have been in the service, wherever you go, in the service, you proudly announce, I am an American. And the fact that you make that announcement demands respect and gives you great confidence and assurance just to be an American. We don't know what it means not to have a home, not to have a flag, not to have an army, not to have uh, a monetary system. 
We don't know what it means not to have a national anthem, nor a government. But the people of Israel, a race of people, a race of people. And I mean the race. God's covenant, God's elect people. For 2,400 years scouted them on the earth without a flag, without a nation, without a government, without currency, without an army, without a navy. Scouted them on the earth. No national home. The Jew would say in those 2,400 years, I want to go home. He didn't have one. There's no government in Israel. Uh, the land of Israel is occupied by the Arabs and by the Turks. And besides that, it was a worthless, barren wasteland. They couldn't have gone back if they wanted to go back. The land would not have sustained them had they gone back. Had the Jews gone back to Israel a hundred years ago, as they go back now, the land would not have contained them. The land could not have sustained them. But God's prepared the land now to sustain many others that will, will be going back in the immediate future. And so all of a sudden, God began to move upon these people scattered around the world. And they began to covet the blessing of home. Look at chapter 36 in Ezekiel's prophecy. Your Bible is open to that page. And verse number 24. In that verse, Ezekiel said, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Now, somebody will say, now, Brother Harold, I think these prophecies were all fulfilled in the days of Jeremiah and Ezra uh, when the Cyrus, the, Me, the, the, the Persian, and Artaxerxes, the Persian, allowed Israel to go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild and repair the walls and the gates. No. They, they came from only one country, Babylon, Persia. But Ezekiel said, I'm going to gather you out of all countries. Here is a regathering that the regathering in Ezra's day and Nehemiah's day just doesn't fit because they were gathered then out of one nation. But Ezekiel said, I'm going to gather you out from among the heathen from all the nations of the earth. And that's exactly where we are now in relation to God's people. They're going back to Israel from America. They're going back to Israel from Germany and France. They're going back to Israel from South America. They even desire to go back to Israel from Russia. And what one of us haven't read in the newspaper, how the Russians have hindered God's people from going back to their national home. But they're going back nonetheless. The migration continues. And some have migrated back to Israel at the cost of their very lives in doing so. They're so set and determined to go back to their fatherland until some of them have paid with their own life for the privilege of going back to Israel. That migration is going to continue. It's not simply a migration. I believe it's literally a regathering, God regathering, God regathering his people. So far as I'm concerned, it's a divine act of God that Israel is going back to Palestine in such large numbers in your lifetime and in mine. Now, this was prophesied in the word of God. In Joel chapter 3 and verse number 20, But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. In Amos 9, 15, the prophet said, I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord God. 
And then Micah said, In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that haltereth, and I will gather her that are driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that haltereth a remnant, and her that is cast off a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forevermore. The land is prepared. The people are being regathered. Direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. You couldn't explain it any other way. They go back to Israel, the Jew. Goes back to Israel, selling everything they have in their, in, in their adopted lands. And they go back by the boatloads. They go back not one by one, but scores by scores every day. They're migrating back to the land of Israel. I read an article the other day in one of the current uh, magazines about how rapidly they're coming back, so rapidly, until they can't keep up building apartments and houses and other dwelling places for the Jews that are migrating back to Israel by the scores every day. A restored land, fulfilled Bible prophecy. A restored people, fulfilled Bible prophecy. Then I come to a third thing. A restored nation. Now open your Bible to chapter 37 in Ezekiel's prophecy. And I'll read just a verse or two there in a moment. Here's one of the most astounding fulfilled Bible prophecies I've ever known in my life. And I've studied prophecy all the days of my ministry. All the days of my Christian life. I think this is the number one prophecy that convinces me of the soon coming of our Lord. No nation of Israel from 600 B.C. Down to 1948, 2,400 years, no nation of Israel, no flag, no capital, no government, no currency, no university, no army, no navy, no Israel. For 2,400 years, no nation of Israel among the nations of the earth. Then, miraculously, May the 15th, 1948, as a decree of the United Nations, the nation of Israel was reborn and the flag of David was lifted again over the city of David, the, their part of it, it, on that date, 1948, May the 15th. Fabulous, tremendous. I remember that date very well in my thinking. I was a student of the Bible prophecy then. I'd been preaching the gospel for eight years when that happened. And when that happened and I saw that in the newspapers, I'll never forget how I felt on the inside of my very being. I said to myself, this undoubtedly is the most profound thing that I've ever seen. And I got busy with renewed emphasis in that day, 1948, preaching all over again the message, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming. Israel is reborn. And my, that's been 25 years ago. Surely we're closer to a second coming now that when this great thing happened in 1948, Israel reborn as a nation among the nations of the earth. Now, what's happened in Israel as a nation since 1948 is so miraculous until it's hard to believe. She's weathered all kinds of storms. She's weathered the threat of all the Arab nations who boasted that they would drive her into the sea and destroy her as a nation. She had a war she had to fight in 1948. And another war she had to fight in 1967. And both of those wars looked like a hopeless situation for Israel. But in both of them she came out victorious. 
and miraculously so, miraculously so in 1967. An astounding victory that amazed and stunned the whole world in that day. That such could be done in six tremendous days that Israel did in the famous Six-Day War. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the rebirth of the nation was God's plan and God's will. And I'm going far enough to say that the day will never be when Israel will become extinct again, when the Arabs will drive her into the sea, or when the Russians will swallow her up. If Russia wants to get bent and broken, and she will one day, if she wants to get Barari, all she need do to get it is to move against Israel. And she's broken and bent and destroyed. Little Israel will destroy the great giant of Russian communism. Sure as you're born. I've made this statement. I want to say it for fear. We may have visit and friends here tonight that ordinarily don't hear a sermon on the second coming of Christ. I believe one of the greatest advantages America has tonight. And there's a lot of disadvantage. There's a lot of trouble in our land. Inflation and uh, trouble uh, in politics, Watergate and things like that have upset and disturbed all of us. But there's one great virtue on our side that I love to call to your mind. America is pro-Israel. President Nixon, with all of his faults, and he may have many, has one virtue that I believe will stand the test of any storm. And that one virtue that he has is that he's friendly to the nation of Israel. And I'm going to hold on to his coattail because I'm friendly to the nation of Israel also. And I think that's one thing God's going to bless America for and prosper our land for and maybe keep our land healthy and strong for that one reason, if for no other reason. If Russia were to come down tonight against little Israel, I know exactly what President Nixon would do. And you know what he'd do. I know what our Congress would do. In spite of Watergate, I believe that the Congress in Washington would vote immediately to go to the rescue of Israel if she were invaded by, by Russia. And that's a venture on our side that I believe God's going to smile upon our land for that reason, if for no other. Other reasons, sure, but that's one great virtue. Now, where's the prophecy concerning the rebirth of this land? Ezekiel 37. Here's an amazing chapter. I wish I had an hour. I could spend an hour on this one chapter, but I can't do that. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel, and God carried me out uh, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. And you know the story. God said, Ezekiel, could these bones live again? It looked hopeless and helpless to the degree that Ezekiel cried out, Oh, Lord God, thou knowest. In other words, he's saying, if they do, you're going to have to do it. He's saying there's no natural way that they can ever live again. He's saying if they live again, it'll be a miracle. And then God said, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to these bones, preach to these bones. That's the craziest thing you ever heard of. A preacher out on the edge of a valley preaching to a valley of dry bones. Why, nothing can happen from that. But Ezekiel is God's man. He believes God. So he commenced to prophesy to these dead bones. And uh, he prophesied the prophecy God put upon his heart. In verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And you'd be wise to prophesy as God commands you. You'd be wise to believe as God tells you to believe. A lot of people criticize me because I believe in the second coming of Christ. But when I rise to meet Jesus, I'm going to wave back at some of those skeptics and say, I told you so. I told you. I told you. I'm going up when he comes again. Ezekiel said, I prophesied as I was commanded. 
And when I did, behold, things begun to happen. Sinew, verse 8, flesh came upon these bones. And now he's got a valley of corpse, dead corpse, no breath, verse 8. And then God said to, to Ezekiel, prophesy to the wind. The wind's a type of the Holy Spirit. And so Ezekiel prophesied to the wind. And he said, Lo, O wind, come from the four winds. O breath, breathe on these that are slain uh, that they may live. And so Ezekiel prophesied as he did, breath came into this great valley of dead corpse. And they stand on their feet, an exceeding great army. Isn't that spectacular? Now what about that? Look at verse 11. Son of man, these bones that you've been prophesying to are the whole 12 tribes of Israel. Not 10, as Herbert W. Armstrong says, but 12 tribes. These are the whole 12 tribes of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, we are cut off for our parts. Behold, I will open your graves, verse 12, and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Here is a direct prophecy of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Humanly speaking, it's impossible that Israel could ever be reborn and could ever be a nation among the nations of the earth. But the impossible thing has happened. And you've seen it. I've visited in the land. I've read it in the newspapers. It's happened. A miracle has happened. And the nation is born again as sure as you live. Now, I've dealt with three things. A restored land, a restored people, a restored nation. Now, all three of these are already fulfilled. You're not, you're not waiting for these to be fulfilled. They are fulfilled, already fulfilled. Now, there are two others that I want to briefly deal with that we yet, yet wait to see their fulfillment. And the first of those last two is a restored peace to the land of Israel. Now look across the page at chapter number 38 in Ezekiel's prophecy. Now in this chapter you find a restored nation, a restored land, and a restored peace, a people rather, in a land where there is no peace. And that's easy for you to, easy for you to see. There is no peace in Israel. There's not any peace there now. Don't you imagine the, the Israelites today feel rather strange when they get aboard an airplane knowing that they're terrorists around the world that would get on board that plane with their bodies loaded with a bomb and set that bomb off and destroy that plane in air and maybe kill 100 125 people. There are Arabs in the world that would give their life for the opportunity of destroying one Israeli airliner with 100 Jews on it. They'd do it in a moment. They don't have any peace. They have trouble, all kinds of trouble in Israel. And most of the trouble they're having now is coming from their brothers, the Arabs around about. The Egyptians, the Syrians, the Syrians are their neighbor, and the Syrians torment uh, Israel night and day, and the Egyptians threaten them night and day, and uh, Jordan right now is quiet. Jordan must be quiet. She's too weak to do anything about threatening Israel. But Israel is tormented. Trouble! No peace in the land today. There's, there's strife. There's discord. The Arabs against uh, the Jew and the Jew against the Arabs. You talk about racial problems in America. It's just as keen in Israel as it is in America. And it's going to get worse. They have no peace in the land. They have the land. They have the people. They have the water. They have the blessing of God. 
They're building faster than they can get it done. People are coming back faster than they can build housing for them. But they have no peace. No peace. And that's why Israel is going to accept the counterfeit peace offered by the Antichrist. When the Antichrist appears on the scene at the rapture of the church, he's going to offer peace to Israel for seven years. He's going to confirm the covenant with many for one week. Daniel prophesied. And Israel in their unfaith and unbelief will accept that confirmation of the covenant from the Antichrist of a seven-year time of rest and peace. Saddest mistake Israel ever made will be that. But before that happens, there's something else that's going to happen. You think Israel has had trouble, she's in for a lot more trouble in the land. And chapter 38 of Ezekiel tells us about that trouble. Look at verse 1. Son of man, verse 2, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Note, prophesy not about him, but against him. And thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against the old Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Chief prince, the, the, uh, the uh, Hebrew word for that is rush, R-O-S-H, which is the same word in our English, Russia, R-U-S-S-I-A. Chief prince, rush, I'm against thee. I'll turn thee back, put hooks in thy jaws, and I'll bring thee forth and all thine army, thy horses and horsemen. I'm going to destroy you, Persia and Ethiopia with you, Libya and Goma, Germany, and the house of Togomara of the north parts and all of his bands and much people with you. I'm going to destroy you. Be thou prepared. I'm going to destroy you. And I'll do it in the land of Israel. Verse number 11, you'll go up uh, to the land of unwalled villages, unprotected villages, You'll go to them that are at rest, those that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. Why are you going to come up against unwalled cities to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are regathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods, and they surely have, and that dwell in the midst of the land. And thou shalt come out, verse 15, out of thy place in the north parts, Russia, Germany and all that part will come down upon the land of Israel. Verse number 16, Thou art come up against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. And it shall be in the latter days that I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me when I am sanctified in thee, O God, before thy eyes. And then God goes on to say what he's going to do that great army. Look at chapter 39, verse number 1. Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn thee back and leave but a sixth part of thee. In other words, five-sixths of your army is to be slain in Israel. Only one-sixth of your army will escape. Verse 11, I'll give you place there in Israel of graves. I'll bury your army in the land of Israel. Seven months, verse 12, shall the people of Israel be burying those that are slain of this great northern army that comes down against the land of Palestine. Now you say, well, preacher, what is this battle you're talking about and reading about? Could this be Armageddon? No, this could not be Armageddon. And I don't have the time to go into it, but I go into it in, de go into it in detail in this booklet that I have before me. This could not be Armageddon. Armageddon is fought at the close of the tribulation period, close of the seven years. This battle I'm reading about now could easily be fought before the rapture. I wouldn't say dogmatically. It'll either be fought at the time of the rapture or immediately after the rapture. 
As far as I'm concerned, this is the battle that will bring the Antichrist and the great prominence and power around the world. It's from this battle and the result of it that the Antichrist will confirm the covenant with Israel for seven years. And Israel will accept that confirmation. Now Israel is in the land tonight, but she has no peace. But Bible prophecy tells us that she's going to have a peace. She's going to first have a counterfeit peace for seven years as a result of this war, at the end of this war. But when the king comes, Jesus comes a second time, she's going to have a real permanent peace of a thousand glorious years in the land of Israel. Now that's yet to be fulfilled. I would not be surprised any day to pick up the newspaper and read where Russia has brought an army out of the north against Israel. Wouldn't be surprised to read that any day. I'm not, I would not be any more surprised to read that than I was the day that I read May the 15th, 1948, that Israel was reborn. And the day that I read that Russia now brings an army down against Israel, I'm going to look up with more fervency and watch for the chariot with more earnestness and listen for the shout with more attentiveness than I've ever looked for the shout or listened for the shout in my life. We'll be closer to the rapture if we see this than we've ever been. And we could easily see it before the rapture. You say, well, I don't think before. Well, maybe immediately after the rapture. But in that general area, you're going to have this great battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 fought. And they're coming down against Israel to take a spoil, to take a prey. Now, here's a little insight. Take it for what it's worth. Our country sold to Russia an alarming amount of wheat. We wondered why Russia would want to buy so much wheat. Evidently, communism is not working out so well as they thought it would. And so we have to feed them. They bought millions upon millions of bushels of our wheat to the degree that our bread's costing more and our food is costing more. You say, do you begrudge that? No, no. I'm, I'm, uh, if our enemy hunger, feed him. That's in the Bible. And I'm not, I'm not envious of that fleet one bit in the world. God will take care of us. Don't you worry about that. God will take care of us. I think President Nixon did the right thing when he sold it to them. If they, they need it, sell it to them. I think our people ought to be taken care of first. But if we have the surplus, sell it to them. I'm not in favor of compromising with the communists. I'm not in favor of, of capitulating to the communists. But if I ain't him hunger, I'm going to feed him. And I think that's being scriptural. God will take care of us. Don't you worry about that. But Russia's in bad shape. And it's natural she's going to be. And in spite of Nixon and Uncle Sam and everything we've got, we're not going to be able to salvage Russia. She's headed for the brush heap. She's headed for the cemetery. God's going to destroy communistic Russia. Sure as you're living, God's going to destroy Russia. Must come. And I think this prophecy is the prophecy that predicts the day when communistic Russia is to be destroyed. All of it might broken and an army utterly annihilated in the valley of Megiddo and in that general area until it takes seven months to bear the dead that are slain out of this dreadful battle that destroys Russian communism. Now, our wheat won't keep her alive. When the hour comes for God's axe to fall on Russian communism, it's going to fall. And she's headed 
for doom and destruction as sure as you live. And out of her destruction will rise the man of sin, the Antichrist, who will confirm to Israel seven years of peace in their promised land. Now that is not yet fulfilled. That's a prophecy that we're looking for in a day to be fulfilled. Now there's one more. A restored peace, but number five, a restored temple. Now here's something very interesting. Now, uh, beginning with chapter 40 in Ezekiel, and I don't have the time to go into it in detail. I'm simply giving you the outline, trying to stir up your thought. You go home and study it for yourself. But beginning with chapter number 40 in Ezekiel's prophecy, through the rest of the book, through 48, you'll find that Ezekiel gives to me and you a detail, plan, and specification for the, for the rebuilding of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Now, just as surely as you sit in this place of worship tonight, the mosque that now stands there in the temple area in the holy city must come down. I don't know how it's coming down. The Jews know that if they went in there and bulldozed that building down, it's an old building, priceless as far as money is concerned, a showplace of all the world. Nobody will deny that. And if they went in and bulldozed that building down, it would uh, cause the most bloody Jew-Arab war the world's ever known. And they know that. And they won't do that. The last time I was in Israel, we watched those Jews at the Wailing Wall pray. If you've ever watched a Jew pray, it's really a curiosity. He has his uh, book of Psalms, the same Psalms we have in our Bible. He wears a little hat on his head. And he'll go down to the Wailing Wall and, and read those Psalms by, by the hour and uh, pray, and he's never still while he's praying. He's bobbing backward and forward continuously while he prays. And he prays out loud. We Baptists got nothing on them. They pray out loud. And they pray all together. Nobody leads in prayer, everybody prays. They must have learned that from us Baptists. <laughs> I'd rather think we learned it from them. Anyway, they bob back and forward this way praying. And I asked one of the guys that was with us that day as I watched, oh, there must have been 150 men and maybe 100, 150 women, the women in one section, the men in the other section, all of them Jews at the wailing wall praying. And they tear a little sheet out of their little Bible or uh, take some other kind of piece of paper and, and fold it together and push it in the cracks of those great stones and leave those little notes, I imagine, what did it amount to? Leave those little notes in the wailing wall for the spirits, I guess. Anyway, it's a real curiosity to watch them pray. And I said to the guide, uh, what are these Jews praying about? What are they asking for? And without any hesitation, that guy said to me that they're praying for two things. He didn't have to hunt for words. He evidently knew exactly what he was talking about. He said, number one, they're praying for the peace of Israel. Everywhere you go in Israel, somebody says, Salome, Salome, peace. Everywhere, they're praying for the peace of Israel. The one thing the Jew wants tonight more than anything else, peace, peace. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.